And the Egyptian congregation today hears, and in the, in the church there was Hans and Gertie, and there was Justin, and there was Jillian, and there was... And they're hearing these names, and they're saying, those sound like foreign names. That's exactly what happened this morning, right? As we read through that list, we go, wow, these are foreign names. We can hardly get them off of our tongues. And yet the scripture says, these were people in the congregation who attended to the word of the Lord. They were reverent before the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord was opened up to them. That's quite a high commendation that still, after this many years, we're reading their personal names. Hopefully, in many years from now, someone could read our personal names and have that same commendation. We'll look at the word of the Lord today from two places, from both Nehemiah and from Timothy. As you see in the bulletin, my title of my sermon is, What Did the Reformers Think of Sola Scriptura? Now, that could put us in a position where we say, well, that, those guys, what did they think? That's great for them. That's 500 years ago. But in some way, the church has to continually be reforming. That was one of their mottos, always reforming. And we have the challenge in our day and age to see how this text, how this scripture applies to us as well. Shortly, I hope to read a little fictitious story. Any of the persons mentioned in there is only coincidental if that happens to be someone or some situation that you know about. Okay, it's not to point a finger, but it's to help us kind of drive this home. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it? Anyone seen that before? Yeah? The bumper sticker, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. In a lot of ways, that's really good. But just believing it and following it are actually two different things. You could say, yeah, I believe what's here. That's great. I give a token assent to whatever is here. Yeah, that's great. But following it's another thing. Once upon a time, two mothers were talking about their children. The mother's names were Sabine and Jane. And they were talking about Sabine's son, Quinto, and his girlfriend, Jacinth. Jacintha. Wow, said Sabine. We have so much news to catch up on. Jane said, so I heard that Quinto finally got a girlfriend. Isn't that great? We had always encouraged him to find a young lady at the church, so it took a while. Is she from the church? Well, not exactly. Her stepmother goes to church once in a while. Jane asked, is she a Christian? Well, she says she thinks God exists. So how long have they been seeing each other? Oh, about six months now. Jane asked, do you think they'll get married? There's so much in love. I know that Jacintha is very interested, but Quinto not very much. Why is that? Well, now that they're living together, it seems like Quinto likes the arrangement, but he's not really ready for commitment yet. What do you think of them living together? 
Sabine said, I'm kind of disappointed. I thought I brought Quinto up to wait for marriage, but he says love is everything. And if they love each other, who am I to argue? Jane asked, but what does the Bible say about this? Oh, Jane, why did you have to bring this up? I know I wanted to follow the Bible, but Quinto just kept telling me that all the youth were doing this. In fact, Quinto said he had just read a book by a Christian writer who told them that it was way better to express their desires than to keep them bottled up. Jane asked, but do you think God has any problem with people who are, you know how the Bible says it, unequally yoked? Isn't that kind of like putting a workhorse and a racehorse together in the same harness? Don't you think they'll have two different ideas? Sabine said, ah, that was then. Cultures changed. We just have to read the Bible with our modern eyes. And the conversation went on. I think you and I could probably identify snippets of that, uh, sometimes in worries with our own children, sometimes in concerns that we have for relatives, or maybe we're not concerned at all. We sang the song, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then we read from Nehemiah how all these people gathered together to hear the book of the law of Moses, that the Lord had commanded Israel. That's not really a book of good advice, take it or leave it. This is kind of, this is the way it should be. Part of the covenant. And so they read, and Levites read. And then in verse 8 we read, they read from the book and from the law of God clearly. That is to say, they expounded the word, the law that was there. And they gave the sense of it. That's not only just translating it from Hebrew into Aramaic, that's also saying this is what is involved with this law, book of the law. So that the people understood the reading. And if we go through the book of Nehemiah, you will actually see that in some way they didn't exactly understand. Because near to the end of the book of Nehemiah, even though God expressly forbade intermarriage with the people of the nations, Nehemiah has to deal with the fact that there is intermarriage among, with the nations. Right at the end, it says he tore his hair out. He was so bothered by that. Even though that was cultural. Let's bring this home a little bit. Today, some people say, ah, yeah, the law of God from the Old Testament. Ah, that's that old, dusty stuff. We don't really have to be believe it. After all, the Bible said you shouldn't eat shellfish, and I like lobster. Isn't that so? And the argument goes, because we don't eat shellfish, therefore, let's apply this to all the rest of the laws. And that's why today I'm helping to give you the sense. In the Old Testament, there were actually three different kinds of laws. There was the moral law, which had to do with sexual ethics, 
which had to do with st moral standards, lying, stealing, etc. And these were based on the fact that God was a holy God. He's still a holy God. And so the principles of those moral laws are unchanging. Secondly, there were ceremonial laws. Do you eat pork or do you eat rabbit? Etc. In order to be pure and clean to come to the temple sacrifices. But we know with those that Jesus has fulfilled those laws. And so we don't live that way. I'm sure many of you here enjoyed a bacon cheeseburger at one time and didn't say, oh, I'm transgressing the law of God. Lastly, there were also another type of law called the judicial laws. And this was a man was gored by an ox and someone dug a pit and had to rescue his neighbor's donkey. We can take principles from those and apply them today, but literally, we do not apply them. So, for instance, there was a law that said if you had a rail, you should build a railing so that someone doesn't fall over it. Now, we don't, architects in this audience don't have to say we need to build the railing exactly the same height as that, but we realize that God cared for human life. And we apply those principles that way. So that was kind of the application of the law. Now let's fast forward to 2 Timothy. <clears throat> let's just go right to uh, verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned. It's possible that Quinto in our story had learned good things. It's possible that Quinto had had godly parents, a godly grandmother. It's possible that Quinto had been a star catechism student. But unlike Timothy, he was saying, I'm not willing to continue in what I have learned. And of course, for all us parents here, we worry genuine, with genuine concern, how will we transmit this faith to the next generation? How will that next generation take the, the, take the baton? That's our great concern, and that's a good concern. But you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned. Because I think the Apostle Paul knew that Timothy had been schooled at his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, and he had been schooled with the Apostle Paul. That is to say, he had had the best of the best. But he's encouraging him, continue. And you firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. This is that, the fact that Timothy firmly believed, or he put his confidence in what he had learned. And now you've been acquainted, verse 15, with the sacred writings from your childhood. What a gift. 
to see all these children here who are acquainted with the sacred writings, with the scriptures, wow. That's not in every place in every country. And the apostle says, these scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And then we come to the text, which is, of course, the classic sola scriptura text. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's exhaled by God. As I speak, I am exhaling. So it gives us the idea that all scripture is actually thus says the Lord. He's breathing it out. He's speaking with his authoritative word. Thus says the Lord. If you go to Egypt and you hear President Sisi, formerly General Sisi, say, thus says General Sisi, you're going to say, you're going to hear people go, sir, yes, sir. Because they know who's the boss in Egypt. I think Quinto might have taken the view a little bit, well, this is kind of negotiable. I can kind of negotiate this stuff. God says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Well, let's have a bit of negotiation here. Because, you know, my situation is kind of unique. Did you notice that in Nehemiah, the people gathered together, they showed reverence to the word of God, and the interpretation of it was given to them. That is to say, they didn't just say, well, my interpretation's my interpretation, and your interpretation's your interpretation, and that's how it goes. There was something very communitarian about that. In our individualistic, sometimes self-centered society, we can come at the scriptures very much the way culture does things. That is to say, I read it my way, I interpret it my way, and that is the way it is. But actually, when we come to the scriptures and interpret them, it should be in the light of the history of the church and also through the lens of the church global. If we think that we are the center of the Christian universe, we've got something wrong. The center of the Christian universe is Niami Niger right now. That is to say there are more Christians in the global south, Egypt, Nigeria, Indonesia, etc., than here. How are they reading the text? Have we th thought about that? How are they reading the text? How did the people since the beginning of the church read the text? That's how the lenses with which we need to come to the scriptures. Our little microcosm here in Hamilton in the year 216 is not a very big context. <laughs> and if we blow that up to be the only context, we are somewhat being fools. That's a little bit harsh to hear, maybe. But we need to see it bigger. 
It's breathed out by God, thus says the Lord. But secondly, it's profitable. It's beneficial. Now when Quinto is negotiating the word of God, I wonder if he's asking if the word of God, if the standards of the word of God are actually beneficial and profitable. Or is he saying, my way is actually more beneficial and more profitable. And what's it profitable for? And then we have four things. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And as we read those, we say, hmm, a couple of those things uh, sound a little tough. It's profitable for teaching. You see, in Timothy's context, there were many false teachers. You can read that at the beginning of the chapter. There were many false teachers. And that's why the Apostle Paul kept hammering on solid teaching. Solid teaching. Solid teaching. Get this, Timothy. It's going to be the antidote for false teaching. And every generation of the church and every context of the church has had to deal with false teaching. And our generation and our context is no different. It's no different. And that's why the Apostle Paul is encouraging vigilance on the part of his student. Secondly, the scripture is profitable or beneficial or actually gets something done for reproof. That's the ouch factor. Reproof? Are you telling me that the scripture is not going to tell me what I want to hear? Yes, sir. <laughs> it's not going to tell me what I want to hear. Reproof is actually an act or expression of criticism and censure. But of course, the Holy Spirit comes to reprove us not because he wants to drive us into the dirt and make us feel like loathsome creatures. God reproves his children because he loves his children that much that he says, I want you to walk in the right way. It's not just punitive. This is for correction. And the next one is, it's for correction. A course correction. Those of you who are sailors, you know that you sometimes have to make small course corrections along the way. Is that not so? It's not just like you sail and it's, the boat has gone way off course and then you say, oh, we'll make a correction. The Word of God serves to make course corrections. And that's why we need it so much. Course corrections along the way as it crucifies our egos. And the last one, and it's good for training in righteousness. The word of God works, and the word there for training is a little bit the same kind of word that we get childhood education from. So the way we train a child, of course, is something 
over and over again, Johnny, don't do this. Johnny, don't do this. Johnny, do this. Johnny, don't do this. Etc. <laughs> because we know that somewhere along the line, the child will likely get it. It's training in righteousness. What is righteousness? We can just let that slip off our lips pretty easily. In this case, what it means is upright standing. To stand upright. That is to be able to look into the eyes of a holy God and to say, my actions, my attitudes, my behaviors conform uprightly with your standards. And that's why we have training in righteousness. Because as I said earlier, Martin Luther said, our bent is to be inwardly focused, this inward curvature. And that's why we need the word of God for this training in righteousness. Why? Verse 17, that the people of God may be complete. Let me give you the sense of that. My son's a welder. Our son's a welder. When he goes to work to be completely outfitted means that he has to go to work with a little bit more than a pair of sunglasses. Those of you who are welders know about this. You need more than sunglasses, simple sunglasses. You need a welding helmet in order to be effective at the work because if you don't, your eyes are going to burn out after day one. And the word of God is like a welding helmet to the welder. That is, it equips him so that he can do good work. And it equips you and I, all of us here, to do good work in the context where we're called. Let's ask a couple questions, though, as we've looked at these scriptures. It's kind of in vogue to say, hey, what I'm doing, doing is biblical. Did you notice that Quinto had read a book by an author who gave him and Jathan's Jacintha, permission to live together before marriage based on what seemed to be a Bible text. But it wasn't. Because in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, it says, but if they cannot control themselves, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Do you see that kind of sleight of hand that happened there? They read something by some author who gave them supposed permission. But it wasn't even the text. I think the approach to the scriptures, our general approach, needs to be the same as from Isaiah 66 verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, says God. He or she who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If General Sisi gives an order, the Egyptian people in some way tremble. Still, we might say, well, 
as Sabine did, well, that was a culturally conditioned thing. After all, women don't wear hats today. Slam dunk, right? Women don't wear hats. But we need to distinguish that which is timeless. That is to say, God is a holy God, has been a holy God, will be a holy God, and his standards are not being changed. That's the way it is. Still, you might say, well, but I know a scholar who said this or that. But what approach is this scholar coming to the text? Is the big question. Because, in a lot of ways, our morality will dictate our biblical interpretation. Our morality will dictate our biblical interpretation because we want the Bible to tell us what we want it we, we want to hear. If I'm someone who's prone to cheat on my taxes, somehow I want the Bible <laughs> to affirm my cheating on my taxes. Why we're corrupt inside. <laughs> Or if I'm greedy, somehow I want the Bible to affirm my greed. And we can apply it farther. One day, Sabine's son, Quinto, will have to make a decision concerning his own mother. She's not well. And the culture around her said that assisted death is preferable to keeping old people around. I'm going to be one of those one of these days. <laughs> and the way that my children interpret the scriptures is going to have certain influence on how they see this old person who may or may not be useful to society. How will Quinto decide? He's already shown that he's willing to negotiate fairly clear scriptures. He's also shown that he is willing to show, or he has shown, that a holy God and his timeless moral standards are up for discussion. He's open to being influenced by teachers who tell him what he wants to hear. He's open to having an interpretive grid on the scriptures, which is largely his own. And this Quinto could be my own child. He is opening, open to interpreting the scriptures through the lens of the culture. What will Quinto do with his father when he's old and gray? Sola Scriptura is a big deal. It's a big deal. May God help us to walk in the light of his word, just as the songs that we sing, saying, help us, Lord, teach us true obedience, holy reverence. We need help with this. But yet we have Martin Luther's song, that word above all earthly power, no thanks to them endureth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. 
people of God, this word of God is powerful. Quicker, sharper than a two-edged sword. And if some way it's pierced you today, don't reject the messenger. Go to him who is gracious. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, you have spoken. Your word is powerful. But it's sharp. And sometimes it hurts. Convict us sharply, gently, and kindly by your Holy Spirit to see if in some way, shape, or form we've also gone the way of Quinto. And we thank you for your Spirit who gives us the power to walk in true obedience and holy reverence. And we thank you for Jesus who followed your word 100%. And we throw ourselves on him. And we ask that that righteousness of his would be ours, that we could be walking in uprightness. Because you are holy and you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we'll sing as we stand, O Word of God Incarnate.